What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And we are here at the Provoke Conference, and uh, this is particularly special because not only are you going to love this guest, who's quite amazing, we're also here at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C., which for a lot of reasons is, uh, is sort of epic. My guest today is Dr. Michael Lomax. He's the president and CEO of the United Negro College Fund, among many other things. Um, when I jump in and start talking about some of the things he's done, it's going to blow your mind. But so, first of all, welcome, Dr. Lomax. It's a Thank pleasure you, to have you. It's Michael, and you're Aaron. Okay. Let's, I always like to be let's respectful. Let's keep it informal. I know you've worked right, for the title, right. so okay. I appreciate that. Um, so I want to start with this, because when I was doing my research, I read this, and I was a little bit blown away. So uh, under your leadership, the United Negro College Fund has raised more than $1.5 billion, with a B, dollars, and help more than 110,000 students earn college degrees and launch careers. Annually, I'm making sure I read this so I get this correct, UNCF's work enables 60,000 students to go to college with UNCF scholarships. I mean, holy cow, talk about someone that's putting good out into the world. And so I just want to start by saying kudos for literally being the embodiment of good. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I you know, we often think of good in terms of impact and impact in terms of dollars and people. And over 75 years, UNCF has raised over $5 billion. We've helped a half a million young people realize their dreams of a college education. And, um, you know, a college degree is still the surest form of social and economic mobility in this country. Um, and how do I know that? Because Michelle Obama says so, you know, <laughs> and She's, she can't be and, wrong. Well, right? Yeah, Michelle Obama says, and you know, and and she's the embodiment of that. You know, uh, first generation college graduate and first lady. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned when you were talking with Arthi Shaw on the stage right before this was needing sharp elbows. You had mentioned your daughter's out in Silicon Valley and his head needed some sharp elbows. And that's the thing that impresses me is I'm sure Michelle needed some sharp elbows as well, but she's so graceful and so seemingly calm under pressure. So that's part of why. Yeah, but you know, if you if, if you have sharp elbows and they really have sharp knives in them, then you no one knows they're getting <laughs> sliced. But I would say this, that, you know, I do think important message to younger people and that is that struggle concedes nothing. I mean, let me see, power concedes nothing without a struggle. And in the words of Frederick Douglass, and power concedes nothing without a struggle. And, you know, if it's, if it's really aspirational to achieve, there are going to be folks and that don't want you to have it. So, I mean, I just think that the notion that we're not always going to struggle. And I would also say struggle makes it sweeter uh, if you have to work hard for it. I don't think you want to work, you know, have to always have to work for hard for everything, but I think it makes a difference. I also just think, and I didn't say this earlier, if you struggle and you work hard and you screw up, you'll learn another important lesson, and that is that failure is the handmaiden of success. And if you don't fail, 
if you don't try and try and fail and get back up and keep at it, you'll never have big victories because if it's, if it's easy, it's not a big victory. Yeah, it's funny because that came up during my session earlier today with Lyft and, and GE. So that was a common theme. So I appreciate that more than you can imagine. I do want to dive into something, and you and Arthi did touch on this. Um, I grew up hearing this tagline, which is that a, I want to make sure that I get this one right as well, because you guys talked about this, um, but you talked about a mind is a terrible thing to waste, which I think is still your tagline. Well, we've, we've done a little bit of uh, addition to it uh, for, a, for a last campaign, but l first of all, let me just say it's a powerful tagline. It is both evocative and provocative. Uh, it is uh, direct and it is also nuanced. Uh, but I think it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like a line from poetry. It's, you know, open to interpretation and that's what makes it powerful. Um, we've, we've added in recent years, we've said a mind is a terrible thing to waste but a wonderful thing to invest in. Um, uh, I think that's been a useful addition, but it's not something that needs to be there all the time. Uh, you know, I think one of the things about UNCF is that, you know, we were founded in 44 at the end of World War II by someone who recognized that um, the men and women of color who had fought to preserve a democracy that did not recognize them as full citizens would come back from flying sorties in Italy, the Tuskegee Airmen, who would come back from working in the, the uh, shipyards of uh, Long Beach and Oakland, the women, the black Rosie, the riveters. They'd come back and they'd say, I want my piece of the American dream and I'm going to need an education. And they knew that America's colleges and universities would remain uh, closed to them, so they needed historically black colleges to support them. And uh, Frederick Douglass Patterson, the president of Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University, and Mary McLeod Bethune, uh, you know, advisor to Eleanor Roosevelt, founder of Bethune-Cookman University in Daytona Beach, Florida. These two extraordinary human beings said, we are going to create a United Negro College fundraising organization. They enlisted John D. Rockefeller Jr. to lead the first campaign. They raised $750,000, the equivalent of $10 million. And we have raised $5 billion and have helped a half million young people realize their dreams of a college education. And so, you know, we've created an enduring American institution that is continuing to do the work to black people born in poverty with low expectations, but they sharp elbowed their way. In the case of, uh, of Mary McLeod Bethune into advising the first lady during World War II. In the case of Frederick Douglass Patterson to getting the highest award of the nation from Ronald Reagan. You know, uh, these people were incredible and they created something of value and so, uh, I'm just honored to, to lead this organization, to be the steward of it, because the work that we do every day to transform the life expectations of young people is, in my judgment, the most important work we could do. It really is. And 
that leads into the next question, which is we are at a communications PR conference, and you were asking, I think on stage, all these things blend in together today, marketing, storytelling. It's a industry that's woefully underrepresented when you talk about people that are black or of color, uh, particularly you mentioned tech, even worse, right? Um, so one of the things I want to talk about is models of success because I think <clears throat> one of the things that people have a hard time with, I'll raise my hand, right? I'm a white guy, 51 years old, is how do I get started? How do I get my sledgehammer? You talked about sledgehammering your way through and having that as part of your tool belt. But what are the models of success that we can look at and how do people that have a desire to want to build a more diverse culture how do they succeed in doing that? What are some of the you pragmatic know, So steps? I will begin. I, the, the, I think one of the areas where we see uh, people of color just killing it right now is in uh, creative industries, um, film, TV shows, whatever that category is, uh, you know, uh, music. Uh, you know, the, the thing about America is that uh, America has always received black music and black dance uh, and valued it, but not valued the people who created it, embraced it, but not embraced the people who created it. Today, um, you know, whether I'm streaming on Netflix or I'm going to a theater, uh, there are going to be black action figures in there. There are going to be black stories told. There are going to be powerful performances by incredibly talented black people. And I think one of the things that's true is that, you know, the talent is so powerful, you just can't escape it. You can't evade it. You can't discount it. And that's, and, and that's interesting because when I was growing up, in Los Angeles, California, close to the movie industry. Uh, you know, I remember we owned it, my family owned a little newspaper, and we used to picket Walt Disney because Disney had no black people anywhere. I mean, and they were one of the most, they were one of the most, I mean, other than Uncle Remus and Zippity Doodah, you didn't see anybody black. I watched the Mickey Mouse Club every day, waiting to see some. And, and one day, a, a little girl from my elementary school, a black girl named Carol, she tab danced on it. But you know, black folks could tab dance. Uh, but you never saw it. So we were invisible in the narrative of America on television. And you know, I remember the only black person you ever saw in the 50s on television was Beulah, a maid or the elevator operator on My Little Margie, you know, and they were always sort of, uh, you know, they were stereotypical figures. Today, that creativity is nuanced and different and it's everywhere. I think that, you know, it's interesting that that entertainment has, there's, there's more of a breakthrough. And, and it's in part because we are consumers, but we're also creators. And so we're at every level of the work. When you talk to uh, Anna DuVernay, she's going to tell you, I'm going to have black folks everywhere. In my hometown of now Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> you know, who's got his own studio? Tyler Perry. So we're producing. And I would say that, that if I were the rest of corporate America, and I would say if you, if you want to tell your story and part of the people you want to hear your story 
are black and brown people. You got to get some black and brown people telling the story. You got to have them in the editorial meetings. You got to have them helping to get the message right. And you know, uh, I just I would say that that this inclusion and this diversity ring truest when the voices and the minds and the experiences which are creating it are diverse. It, it rings the least authentic when that isn't the case. And you know whether that just means I said it wrong and I get it wrong because I don't have that experience and somebody should have told me before we even put it out there that this is going to offend or it's not going to resonate or it's not going to be the way the story is understood and received in communities of color. Um, or you're gonna you're you're gonna get you're gonna have those bad experiences and it's going to be a pardon me moment. It's gonna be a Gucci moment. It's gonna be you know and Gucci had I don't remember what they had sambos or something I can't remember. You know it's gonna be one of those moments where anybody if you'd had a diverse group of people in the room they'd have said uh, that is an offensive representation. Don't put that out there. You know when some of these things happen when these you just wonder who was in the room and guess what the answer is nobody who looked like the people you're offending and so I think that's at its worst it's it it is harmful and painful and is a you know doesn't help the brand at best it flies because it it's speaking to everybody so one of the things you're talking about now and you touched on in the panel was unconscious bias and you mentioned whether it's among you know, people of color as well as whites where maybe we are well-intentioned and you talked about the interview process and becoming uncomfortable. How do we become more uncomfortable and, you know, some tips for people listening in to say, don't pick someone like you don't pick someone that makes you feel good out of the gate just because, because then we create this sort of filter bubble of people, right? Or people that think like us versus people are diverse. So how do you, how do you break out of that unconscious? Well, I think, I think if you're in a position of power, an influence you direct you do you say I expect to see different outcomes and your compensation your reward your elevation in the company are going to be related to that uh, you know I look I we all and, and look everybody's got their biases I'm a black male 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 and you know, and education is an is a arena where women predominate. Uh, Seventy percent of black women uh, of the people going to college are black women, and you know, and thirty percent are guys. Well, the guys ain't getting it, so you know, uh, we got to figure out how to help them get it. But in the meantime, we got to reward the people who are getting it. And so, in my own organization, I've said we have to have this has to be an environment where women flourish where women thrive, where women feel rewarded, acknowledged, and supported, and we're going to have to make changes. So, uh, you know, how do you do that? Just start making changes. So we, we're, we've gotten, we're, we're expanding as a company. And I've said, I want to see highly qualified women candidates for every one of these jobs, and I want to know that they were considered and I want to see some different results. And if if we don't, no hiring will. So I'm going to make that final. I'm. I want to leverage my 
power in the organization to help the organization be more reflective of the community we serve. And, um, and you know, I just, I mean, so, and, and when I realized, we had, a, we had an all UNCF meeting last year. <laughs> and the women stood up and said, we don't feel fully appreciated in this environment. It was like, wham, smack me. And I felt, I felt particularly terrible about it because I grew up in a home with a very strong black woman who every day felt like she was not getting her, the respect she was due in her profession, which was journalism. And you have three daughters. And I have three, and I have three granddaughters, you know, so I got to get this stuff right. But I, I think so, you know, so I, I want to say that this isn't just, I'm not the speaker of all truth and I'm not pointing the finger at others. I'm looking in the mirror. And I want to just, you know, to people who are in positions of power and influence in companies, look in the frigging mirror and, and then look at the people who surround you. And if all the people who surround you look like you, there's a problem. Seems obvious, but uh, yeah, but but, you know, but 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 we have blinders on, and I think it's, you know, it's it's easy. Now I want to say that you know, we can we can as black people in, internalize some of those racial biases and I mean some of those insidious views of our own people. But the bigger issue, and the other side of this issue, the larger issue, the big impact issue is. Uh, in places of power and privilege in this nation, people don't look like us. And we have to sharp elbow our way in there. And we also have to not just view that the only asset that people, that really differentiates, which is the only asset which is a value, is money. It isn't. You know, I mean, I, I like to tell the story of the work we do in terms of dollars and cents. And, but the, the other power of the work that we do at black colleges is we help to build people's self-esteem, their sense of their value and importance, the importance of the culture from which they came. And that, that empowers and emboldens and, 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 and enables them to do the work differently. Um, and, and so when I'm in places where you know, I'm sitting around the table with very powerful people, whose position is they represent money, they represent wealth. They, you know, I want to say, well, you know, I don't have all that, although I'm doing pretty well. But, you know, what I do have is earned experience. I bring my point of view. I bring my intelligence into the room. And, oh, by the way, you're wrong on this issue, and I'm right. And, oh, by the way, I learned from you. You need to learn from me. And what I keep hearing from people is, well, you know, maybe we can do this for you. I say, you know, let me just tell you, whatever you're doing for me, if you're not getting all of my value back to you, that's only because you're not willing to receive it. And, and your unwillingness to receive it is that you can't acknowledge that I, have, that I bring value. And, you know, and I'm a pretty smart guy. I got a point of view. I got a worldview. If you're missing out on that, you're missing out on something. And I know I'm missing out on something if I'm not hearing you. And I think that, that in many cases, we, we don't value we really don't value the different voices. We want to say we do. We check the box. But I don't think we really embrace the opportunity. We hear, we don't listen, unfortunately. And, and we go through the motions. Yeah. 
I know we have a, just a few minutes left. We have three. I give long answers. To no, I love your long answers. I'm trying to be respectful of the team and, and yourself. Um, more fun questions. Yeah. We'll do them quickly if we can yeah. so you can get out of here. Uh, the first one is tell us something about you that people don't know that you're willing to share. Something about me that people don't know that I'm willing to share. Well, I do think when I do all this media stuff, I, you know, I, I just tell people because my team is always saying to me, well, you have to do a mic check. You have to do this. I said, you know, I did the Art Linkletter show when I was in elementary school, and I did it twice. I, they called me back. So, you know, I've been, <laughs> I've been that's doing a good one. I, so that's, I did Art Linkletter. You know, if I got past Art Linkletter, I ought to be able to get past you. <laughs> uh, second one is a book that you've read that you'd like to share sometime. Well, I am actually, so there's a book that I am reading right now, which is such a powerful book. And um, it is Frederick Douglass. I'm a third through, I mean, this is a long sucker because he lived a long, long time great abolitionist, but he lived beyond, you know, the Civil War. He went from slavery to freedom. Uh, he, he lived beyond the Civil War. He didn't die until 1895. Um, uh, and, you know, he, he was a women's, he was a suffragist. He, was, he did all of those things. And he was such an incredible black man. And if there's any black man that I... He's one of those that I try to pattern myself up. There's a long book. I would encourage people to read it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. There's a, there are some other books that I would encourage people to think about. There are a lot of books right now which are about the period after the Civil War uh, through what we call Reconstruction. It was the moment in America over 100 years ago when black people had equality for a very brief amount of time. And some of the most enduring institutions, historically black colleges, were created then. Uh, but all of that was taken away. And I think we, as we struggle through this moment in time right now where race and race hostility is, is re-emerging, I would, I would encourage people to read about that moment in time and to realize that, you know, we have been the most powerful nation in the world. We have to be the best nation in the world again. We have to be a good country as well as a powerful country. And part of that means we have to, you know, um, we have to kill this beast called hatred and racial hatred. Never get rid of the fact that cultures and societies are different but the hatred and the vitriol and the violence need to go. That's such a powerful statement. I almost want to end here, but I have the one, one last more, fun yeah, one, yeah, which yeah. is the deserted island. So, so, if I run, so if I run a deserted island, this is really hard for me because uh, I, I love music. I love two forms of music. I love the great black women vocalists of the 19... 30s, 40s, and 50s. So Billie Holiday, uh, Sarah Vaughn, Dinah Washington, Ella Fitzgerald. But I also love bel canto opera, Italian bel canto opera. I mean, it's, it's a weird combination. Someone needs to do a, a mashup. Of well, a mashup, and you know, and so I want to hear Maria Callas, who is a I mean, she had to be a little bit of a black diva because she got a really rough voice, and she—you always know it's Maria Callas because she—it's not the most beautiful voice, but.
but it's the most emotional voice. It's the most sensual voice. It is, it is the most uh, dramatic in telling the story. You know, she's, she is, for me, the operatic Billie Holiday. So if I could have all of because I, I, I can't listen to the same thing over and over again, but if you put that together with some of those great arias, I don't need the guys. I need the women. And then the other thing that I love, too, is, uh, is I do love gospel. So I would have to have Mahalia Jackson in there, too, just to you know, just add a little bit of... I was just going to say, I think maybe we have to make you a Spotify playlist to hey, get oh, all hey, of these hey, but it, you know, It's, it's going to be a hard one. Not everybody's going to like it. My grandchildren who get in the car with me, I say, it's time to listen to opera. And there's this, like, this collective moan. But I know I'm having an impact because they kind of sing along with it, too. Yeah, you'd always be surprised. Well, thank you so much. This is Aaron Strout, CMO, W2O host of the What's No podcast. And I've had the pleasure of the last 20-ish minutes talking to Dr. Michael Lomax, who is the CEO and president of the United Negro College Fund. This was a true honor. Thank you well, so thank much. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much, Aaron. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.